And I'm excited to be here with you together, not only as we sing, but as we, we open up the Word of God tonight. Now, I mentioned last week that we're going to start a new series in 1 Thessalonians, but I actually, midway through the week, I, I kind of changed it a little bit. We're going to start that series, or, or 1 Thessalonians, next week. Tonight, what we're going to do is we're going to look at how Paul went to the city of Thessalonica, when he preached the gospel, we're going to look at how this church began. And so if you want to remain standing, I'm going to read. This is when Paul and Silas had preached the gospel, and it caused a disturbance among those who lived there, and they went to go find Paul. Look at here, verses 6 and 7 of chapter 17, Acts 17. It says, and when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Now let's stop there and have a seat. And as you have a seat, I just want to say I'm excited about this series. I'm excited to jump in and, and kind of handle the actual book, the actual letter Paul writes to these people that he reaches uh, some years later or sometime later. But, but I want to kind of set some things up for you tonight because tonight we're going to zero in on this phrase, how, how these men have turned the world upside down. And I want, to, I want to start with an image that might help you kind of imagine this with me. Anybody here ever helped a six-year-old clean their room. Okay, so, so we've got three kids, and all of our kids have kind of gone through different stages, and in that, something about that five, six, seven-year-old stage, they accumulate stuff, and it's like random stuff, right? It's like the leftover cereal, and, and whatever the wrapper is from the candy they had, and, and who knows how many McDonald's toys. Even if you don't go to McDonald's, you got McDonald's toys showing up at your house. Like, how do these things even get here, right? And so typically, when it's time for uh, the youngest to clean his room, we go in there, and we find that he's got these storage bins that are meant to be kind of like organized, like this is your Lego bin, this is your Nerf bin. No, they're all mixed together. And, and then we pull out everything from under his bed, and it's all mixed together. Like, there's your pants you're looking for. Oh, there's four towels from the, the shower or whatever. And you pull it all together, and then you take these bins, and you can't just cherry pick when you clean them. You can't just take one thing out at a time, right? If you do that, you will be there. How long will you be there? You'll be there forever. If you've ever helped a, a young kid clean their room, you know exactly where I'm going with this. You gotta take those bins and you gotta take them to the middle of the room and you gotta turn that thing upside down and you gotta spill all of it out if you have any hope whatsoever of, of not simply just cleaning the room, but, but getting them, getting their, getting their organization of their room, getting it on track. And, and I, I, here's the deal. I actually think the same thing applies when the gospel comes to a town. And I think the same thing is seen when the gospel comes to a life. Well, what we're going to see tonight is we look at Acts 17, preparing to jump into 1 Thessalonians next week. What we're going to see is that the gospel works the exact same way. I've seen it over and over again, and you see it in the scripture over and over again. The gospel turns life upside down before it puts life on track. 
The gospel, Jesus, his message, his death and resurrection, when it comes to a person, when it comes to a family, when it comes to a city, what it does is it turns everything upside down before it starts to turn things right and put things on on the correct track. I mean, maybe you're here. Maybe you're here and you feel like this Christianity thing. It's just, I'm going to add a little bit of Jesus to my life. Uh, You know, a little bit of Jesus on the weekends once in a while, a little bit of Jesus to my life. And if that's you, I think this passage is, is meant for you. Or maybe you're here and you, you wonder, what kind of impact should the gospel actually have? What kind of impact should the gospel actually have on, on my life or on my city? If you've ever wondered that, Acts 17, 1 through 9, it's for you. And, and maybe you're here and you're wondering, uh, what it would look like for you to be able to effectively share your faith with, with a friend who doesn't know Jesus or with a coworker that doesn't know Jesus, or, or with, with a loved one, with a family member. Maybe you've, what would it look like for me to effectively share my faith so, so that something might actually happen? If that's you, if any of those people are you, this message is for you. See, what we're going to see tonight is the gospel of Jesus. He doesn't just come and tack a little bit onto your life. He, he turns your world upside down. We're going to see the message when it comes to a group of people. It's meant to realign the way all of us live in, in relationship with each other. And what we're going to see is that the gospel, it's meant to come and impact your life and the way you actually share what you have received in the grace of Christ Jesus. And so to do that, I want to I start, and if you want to grab one of the Bibles that's around you, I'm actually on page 871 or in Acts chapter 17. And we're going to start picking up in verse 1 of this chapter. And, and here's how the, the story begins. The gospel comes to town. It's kind of like almost like a, 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 a team pulls in to play, to play against another team. But, but instead of that, it's, it's the messengers of the gospel, Paul and Silas. They, they show up in this town of Thessalonica. The, the gospel comes to town. Acts chapter 17, starting in verse 1. It says, Now when they had passed through Amphilius and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, and as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, for three weeks, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Let's let's understand some of this context. Paul and Silas, these these are two guys that are, they're going basically from city to city. They're, they're traveling from one place to the next. And, and whenever they land in the next city, they, they set up shop and they begin to preach. They begin to share. They begin to proclaim all about Jesus. Now they have just left Philippians, the, the, the church in Philippi. 
They had just started a church there. They actually got thrown in prison there. They were treated pretty poorly there. They actually might have been a little bit discouraged with the way they were treated there because when you get to 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 2, it says, Paul writing, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated in Philippi, they are showing up, and they're showing up after what we would call a loss in baseball. They feel like they just gotten beat up they just got shamed. They just suffered. They just, they just were bruised and beaten for the gospel. And so they just kind of suffer a loss. Uh, and they show up in the next city, kind of licking their wounds. They have not been having a good go. And they show up in the next city and they find that there is a Jewish synagogue. And so Paul and Silas, they go to this Jewish synagogue in the city of Thessalonica, which is in the north end of the Aegean Sea. This was a major seaport. This is what a major city. It was actually a free city in the Roman Empire. And they go there and they begin to well, not just yell at people. They're not, the, they're not the guy on the street corner with the sign that says, you're all going to go to H-E double hockey sticks, right? That's not what they do. They go, to the, they go into the temple and they, or the synagogue, and they begin to strategically, with intentionality, share about Jesus. In fact, I want you, if you're a Christian here tonight, I want us just to kind of slowly examine their strategy for sharing the gospel, because I think, I think this is prescriptive for us. I think you and I, we can learn it, when we're thinking about how do I share the gospel at work? How do I share the gospel with my family? How do I share the gospel with my friends? We can learn from their example and how they go about it. Well, look with me at their gospel strategy. First of all, it says that Paul persuades from the scriptures since three days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. This word reason means that he argued or he discussed. He conversed or he even disputed. You see, what's the point of an argument but to persuade someone? He sat down with them and he opened up the Old Testament scriptures and as, as much as they would be willing to listen, he said, oh, turn here and oh, now turn here and now look at this and, and oh, open up to Isaiah 53. Look at this amazing passage. Let, let me show you something amazing. Let me show you something marvelous. He sat down with them and he, he persuaded them. But, but notice, he persuaded them with the scriptures it wasn't just human reasoning. He didn't just sit there and, and rest on his own intellect. He didn't tell them some, some cute stories that gave them a, a heartwarming experience so they might consider Jesus. He sat down and he opened up the Old Testament scriptures. He opened up the word of God and he reasoned from them. He, he took the word of God and he called their attention to its implications about Christ. And see, the reason I think this is so important because, because faith, according to Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing. And hearing through the word of Christ. You want someone to believe. You, you, you want someone to, to know Christ. The principle in the scripture isn't it just that you sit and you talk with them and you tell them your great ideas. 
The principle in the scripture is that you trust that the word of God is powerful. And when you're willing to open it up and say, let me, let me show you a verse. Can, can I read a, a paragraph for you? Can, can I read this to you? And can you tell me what this means? What does this mean as you hear these words? If you open up the word of God and you engage with someone who does not know Christ based on the word of God, that is one of God's primary ways of moving someone into his kingdom, of revealing who Christ is. So it begins, Paul persuades from the scripture, but then it goes on. He, he, secondly, he proves the need of people. He doesn't just say, you should really believe this word of God. He, <clears throat> he layers on the need that mankind has. Verse three, it says, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead. This, this means, this, this word to explain and to prove together, this is to establish evidence so that you can show that something is true. In a sense, Paul is being a courtroom lawyer and he's saying, exhibit A, exhibit B, and all of this is establishing one thing. He's showing them that it was, the word is necessary or it could say inevitable or forcefully it must happen. It was inevitable, it was necessary that what? That Christ would suffer. Do you know why it was necessary that Christ would suffer? Do you know why it was inevitable that God sent his son Jesus to suffer and die? Because there was no one else and nothing else that would do. The Old Testament system of sacrificial animals was only a, a holding place. It didn't remove the sin of people. See, the reason it was necessary for Christ to suffer is because you and I, we, we, not because we've suffered, but because we have, the word is, we've sinned. Because of our sin, we've broken our relationship with the God who made us to know him. He created you in his image. He wants you to know him. And you and I, you know what every one of us has done? We've said, I'm going to turn my back on you, God, and I'm going to do the opposite of what you say. That's called sin. And when we sin, we break that relationship with God and no amount of trying harder will fix it. There, there's no extra credit here. There's no saying, I'm just going to go to church a little bit more or I'm just going to be a little bit better person or maybe I'll give more financially to good causes. Maybe I'll, I'll be nice to my mean neighbor or whatever. No amount of extra credit will cut it. There is nothing you can do to save yourself. This is what Paul is arguing. He says he's reasoning from the scriptures, demonstrating, explaining, showing that it is inevitable that Christ would suffer. He died to pay the price for our sins. It says that he would suffer and rise from the grave. Not only did he die, but he died and was buried, and then he was resurrected by the Spirit of God, by the power of God, so that everyone who believes in him can have their, their sins removed and washed away completely. They can be made a brand new creation. They can be given hope and joy, the, the joy and the peace that we heard about last week when Dr. Adams was here. This is what Paul did. <clears throat> he, not only did he persuade from the Scriptures, but he proved the need of people. Well, what does this mean for us when we share the gospel? It, it means that we gently, lovingly, and boldly show people that they have sin in their life. We don't do it with a bullhorn. 
We don't do it with a finger pointed in judgment. We do it with an open scripture and an open heart. But we do it out of love. To say, this is, this is the point of Christianity. Jesus died because of our sin. This is what was necessary And he did all this reasoning from the scripture. He went from the scripture to our need and ultimately he lands on Jesus and he proclaims Jesus as Messiah. The end of verse three, it says, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Paul says, sit down with me for a minute. Let me show you how the Old Testament scriptures all point to Jesus Sit down with me for a minute. Well, let's just be honest for a minute. Have you ever lied? Have you ever lusted? Have you ever stolen? Have you ever hated? All of those things that lump all of us together as enemies of God. And all of it means that we need a Savior. We need a Messiah. We need the Christ. And he says, this Jesus is the Messiah. That's what Christ means. The anointed one, the Messiah, the Savior. This is how Paul went about sharing the gospel. This is not rocket science. I look around in this room and those in this room that I know, guess what? Every single one of us can do that. We won't do it perfectly. I doubt Paul did. But every single one of us can say, let me, let me show you how all the scripture points to Jesus. Let me show you how all of, our, all of our sin points to our need for Jesus. Let me show you how Jesus in his death and resurrection proves that he is the Messiah. You see, this is how the gospel, this is how the gospel is meant to come to town. And this is how the gospel is meant to come into your life. It, recognizing that it's all about what Jesus has done for you. The gospel isn't a, you, you need to be a better person message. You will be. Jesus will change you. But the gospel is this message that says, this is exactly what Jesus has done for all of us. You know what that means? You cannot bring the gospel message to the people in your life simply by being a good person. Wouldn't that be great if that's all you had to do? You know, I'm just, I live a moral life because I'm a Christian. And so that's all I have to do. I never have to open my mouth. Listen very carefully. You will not reach the people in your life simply by living a moral life. This means you you cannot and you will not bring the gospel message of Jesus Christ to the people in your life that you care about simply by praying for them. Now, should you live a moral life? Absolutely. Absolutely. You should be changed by the gospel more and more. Not perfect, but growing in Christ-likeness. Should you pray for those in your life who do not know Jesus? There should be a resounding yes, duh, of course. We should be praying daily for those who have yet to trust in Christ. But listen, the pattern of Scripture is that sooner or later we open our mouth. Sooner or later we reason with them, persuading from the Scripture Sooner or later, we we prove the need that all of us have for a Savior. And and sooner or later, we we proclaim the only Savior there is, is Jesus. In fact, scoot back to that verse 2. 
You notice in verse two, it says, and Paul, when he went in, says, as was his custom. This was Paul's pattern. Underline that word custom. Circle that word custom. Start. Let, let me ask you, what is your custom for sharing the scripture and for sharing the gospel? This word custom means practice or habit. This word custom means that this is your usual manner of living. Paul's was to go and to get into a debate in the synagogue. You don't have to do that. But your custom should parallel reasoning from the scriptures, showing people their great need and showing people the great savior in Christ. You might think, you know what? If I had a custom like that, that would turn my life upside down. Yep. That's exactly what it would do. If you had a custom that said, I am going to reason from the scriptures, point to people's need, and point them all to Christ, that would turn your life upside down. That is exactly the point we're going to see by the end of this. This should be your custom. And it should have the effect of turning your life upside down. You see, the gospel, it comes to town, but it doesn't come to the town like a circus where you just go and you look at it from a distance. The gospel comes to town, and here's the second part. It comes to town, and it calls for a response. Verses four and five. The gospel calls, it beckons, it demands a response. Verses four and five, it says, and some of them were persuaded, and they joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob and they set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them, Paul and Silas, out to the crowd. The gospel demands a response and you see two responses here. Here's the first response. The first response is that some respond with belief. Some respond with belief. They're persuaded, it says. To become persuaded means that they become convinced of the truth that was presented and all of the implications that follow. They say, I see the scripture points to this Christ. I confess that I'm a sinner and I'm in trouble if I'm counting on my own ability to be good enough to earn God's approval and I am convinced that Jesus is the Messiah who died and arose from the grave. This is they are persuaded. They end up having faith. But look at who is persuaded. Here's what it says. It says some of the Jews in the synagogue probably were. So some Jewish people. Some people that knew the Old Testament scripture well. Jason was probably among those. He was likely a Jewish believer. Some think he was actually related to Paul. But, but beyond that, it says some of the devout Greeks. The devout Greeks, these are Gentile people. These are people that aren't Jewish. They don't have a Jewish kind of uh, ethnicity or history, but they, they become fearers of God. They, they want to know the one true God, and they become convinced. They become persuaded. Look at who else. It says some of the leading women. It goes out of its way to, to say, look, the, the gospel, is, it's, a, it's called out to some of those women in, in Macedonian area or Thessalonica who were, who were wealthy and leading and, and had influence and power. Here's the point. 
Jew, Gentile, man, woman. Here's the point. The gospel is for everyone. Jesus is for everyone. Let's be very clear. I mean, this, I think this clarity is important in our day and age when there's a lot of racial tre- tension, isn't there? When our culture is trying to, to fuel the fires of animosity between ethnicities, listen very carefully. The gospel is for everyone. Doesn't matter what you look like. Doesn't matter your gender, if you're male or female. Doesn't matter what you've done or haven't done. Doesn't matter how moral or immoral you've been. The gospel message, it is, it is laid out there and it is presented and it is calls for a response for everyone. And some believe, and look at what those who believe do. It says, those who respond with belief, it leads to joining with God's people. Verse four, it says they were persuaded and they joined. This is like the idea that they have a, a new association. This is saying, you know what? I used to be part of this group of people, but these are the ones that are speaking about Jesus. And so now I'm going to be part of this group of people. In fact, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1, look, look at how it describes those who are believers. It says, Paul and Silvanus, this is Silas actually, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in, the God, in God of the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. It says, to the church. This is the, the Greek word ekklesia. This is to those who have been called out. Th- those who are an assembly, those who have joined in and are now part of, of God's people. Can you imagine? Can you imagine someone in Thessalonica? They hear the gospel message. They're persuaded that Jesus is the Messiah. They say, okay, I get it. Jesus is the only way. And they say, okay, guys, um, maybe I'll come hang out with you guys in a few months again. Maybe, maybe let, me, let, me go, let me go check my calendar. So you guys hang out. How, oh, you meet, you meet weekly? I don't, I don't know if I can fit that in. Can you imagine someone who comes to terms with their great need for the Savior and there is a group of people that are worshiping that Savior and they, they keep an arm's length away from that group of people? No, the, the natural trajectory is what? It says they were persuaded and they joined. They aligned themselves with God's people. Let me ask you. Some in this room I recognize I don't know who's watching online. Let me ask you, have you been persuaded of Christ? And not only that, have you aligned yourself with the people of God? Have you said, I I am part of this group. I am part of their mission. I am part of those who call on the name of the Lord. You see, some, this is exactly how they respond. They believe, they're persuaded, and they join. but, But look at how some others respond. Some respond with jealousy. Some respond with this, this aggressive response. Their jealousy means that they have, they have a strong envy and a resentment against Paul and Silas because they see what God's doing through them. And so those who respond with jealousy, they go to the market. They, they go to the probably the place where all of the hired workers who have not been hired for the day are sitting there idly. And they grab them and they create a mob. 
They create a rabble. They create a crowd. And this crowd, they go to the door of Jason because Paul and Silas were seen with Jason. And it says that they, they likely break down his door and they go into his house looking for Paul and Silas, but they don't find Paul and Silas. They find Jason. See, they, they respond with this incredible violence. This is, this is kind of like our world today, isn't it? I mean, you go turn on the TV tonight and you're going to see that there's a crowd in Seattle and there's a crowd in Portland and they come out at night and they start to, they start to do what? They start to respond with whatever they want, with, with aggressiveness and with violence, the, the animosity, the jealousy, the envy, whatever is stoking their fire, whatever they say is stoking their fire, the, the way they're responding is just like what we're seeing here and, and and so they respond against the order God has made. They respond against law and order. They respond against what's right and good. They respond with, with violence. And we say, man, this is terrible. I mean, <laughs> who likes to go drive around Portland right now? Not a hand. Two years ago, who liked to go down to downtown Portland and walk around? It was enjoyable. Why? We're amazed, but Jesus actually says you shouldn't be amazed. Not just about the cities and, and the turmoil in the cities, but, but he said, if you align yourself with me, you, you should not be amazed or surprised when the world responds aggressively to the, the gospel and how the gospel calls for a response. See, the world hated Jesus, and he promised that the world would hate his followers. Look at his words, Jesus' words. John 15, 18 says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Christian, Jesus is speaking to you. There is not such thing as a live and let live. We certainly will live that way. But Jesus says that the world will, they will respond with aggressive hate toward you. It's like when you go to the doctor and you're sitting up on the bench and they take that little hammer thing and they hit you right in the knee and your knee jerks up, right? Jesus says, this is the knee-jerk reaction of the world to those in Christ. They can't help it. They're going to have animosity. They're going to have aggressive behavior toward you. Why? Well, in this story... Those in power in the world, their power was being challenged. They were jealous, but, but really the reason the world hates is because their master demands such a response. See, Satan hates God. And Satan hates everything that stands in line with God. And Satan wants to destroy everything that aligns with God. This is why Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.26. He says that those who are the enemies of the gospel, it says they've been captured by Satan and led along to do his will. This is what the mob is doing in Thessalonica. 
They're being led along by the enemy to respond with aggression against those who are in Christ. And Jesus says, guess what? This is how they responded to me. They drug him outside the city limits and they crucified him on a cross. And he says, this is how the world will respond to you. Now, for the most part in 21st century America, you don't have people dragging you outside the city limits. But it doesn't mean that you get away with following Christ scot-free. Listen, some of you in this room, following Christ is going to cost you friendships. If you follow what Paul does here and reason from the scriptures and show people their need because of their sin, and you say that Christ is the only way, I'm sorry. Some of your friends will walk away from you. Some of your family members will distance from you. Some of your coworkers will leave you out. Some of you might lose your job or get passed over for a promotion. Why? Because the world hates you. Because you love Christ. Jesus' words are so encouraging here. Listen to them again. He says, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. Let me just ask you to stop trying to get the world to love you as its own. How many Christians today are more concerned with the way that those outside of Christ think of them and whether they like them or not? Your goal is not to have the world love you as its own. Jesus continues, he says, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you. Jesus, I came and I chose you. I said, you are mine. I'm going to save you. I'm going to bring you to me. So, so no longer do you need to cater to the way the world works. You're no longer of this world. See, responding with jealousy leads those outside of Christ to join, not with God's people, but against God's people. These are the two responses you'll see. And, and you know what? Sometimes you'll see a milder response that says, ah, I'm not ready yet, or maybe it, it's, it's subtle. But there's only two responses to Christ. Yes, I'm persuaded and I believe and I'll join with God's people, or no, it's not for me. There is no maybe. There, there is no maybe. And the reason why the gospel requires such a response is because the gospel confronts the world. The gospel confronts the way the world works. The gospel confronts the systems of this world. The gospel con confronts the power of the world and the leadership structures even of this world. Look with me, verses 6 through 9. And when they could not find them, remember they, they broke down Jason's door. They, they, they were looking for Paul and Silas. It says, but when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting. Look at what they shout. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason, this guy, you guys, Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. Verse 8, and the people of the city, and the city authorities, they were disturbed at hearing these things. 
And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, <clears throat> they let them go. You see, these people that are upset, these people that respond aggressively, they respond aggressively because they understand exactly what's going on here. They understand that the gospel turns the world upside down. These men who have turned the world upside down, they've come to our town. They've come to our front door. They're preaching about this, this Jesus guy. Now, now listen, when we talk about this world being turned upside down, sometimes we want to use the word revolution, right? Viva la revolution, right? We want to get all excited. It's a revolution, but, but the Christian revolution is not a revolution that says, down with the government, that's not what Paul and Silas are preaching. The Christian revolution is not a, a revolution that says, let's go and take down the systems here. That's not what they were preaching. The, the Christian revolution is a revolution that proclaims something entirely different. It says that the kingdom of God is here. They say that we have, we have a higher order than the government of this world. We have a higher allegiance than any kind of country or nation. It says that, that we have an allegiance that is to the kingdom of God. Listen, this is why you're here tonight. This is why we're here when so many churches are uh, being pushed toward closing their doors and being demanded that they lock down. Why do we continue to gather and sing? Because we have a higher allegiance. Because we say that there is a kingdom of God that is greater than any earthly king or any earthly president, that there is no Caesar that can outrank the Christ. And so we gather and we proclaim in song and in word and in encouragement to one another, we proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is what we come to, together and do. See, the gospel, it turns the world upside down. Why? Because the gospel proclaims another king. It says, they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king. Now, the king at that time, the, the, the emperor, was Claudius. This is the Claudius that would, he expelled the Jews out of Rome at one point. He, he, he was a Caesar, and his decree is that he's the only king. That you should not bow to any other king, that he is king, no one else, no one compares. And so when the Christians show up, when Paul and Silas, they started to proclaim Jesus is the Christ, is the anointed one, is the Messiah, when they say that he is the kingly ruler, they're standing in direct opposition to the decrees of Caesar. This is what we call out. We see that we, we proclaim that there is another king. The idea of another here is, is a completely different kind. For those in Thessalonica, Thessalonica they were realizing that the king was not Claudius. For our world today, we, we realize maybe, maybe that the king's not the president. But, but I think it goes even deeper into us today. Because what we end up saying is that not that we're, we're pushing against this government king. We, what we push against is the king that we want to be. 
When we say that Jesus Christ is king, we're saying it's not Claudius, and it's not Biden, and it's not me. It's not me. That's what it really offends today, because all of us, we want to be the king of our own life. This is how I want to spend my time. This is how I want to spend my money. This is how I want to spend my energy. This is how I want my life to look. And we say, this is what I am going to do instead of saying, who, who is the real king? And, and what does King Jesus demand? And in proclaiming this other king, look, at it says, and the people and the city authorities, they were disturbed when they heard such things. They were disturbed. They don't want to hear someone proclaiming a different king besides Caesar. And you and I, oftentimes, we're, we're disturbed when we hear there's a different king besides me and me being the king of my life. But, but here's the point. Here's the point. Your life will not be the same when you trust in Christ. Your life will not be the same when you follow King Jesus. There is a dramatic change that makes it so that you no longer fit in with this world. You no longer bow to the world's demands. You no longer play along with the world's expectations. You no longer live to, to please the kings of this world or the king of self. You now live to please a completely different king. You now live to please King Jesus. Now, let me, let me circle back to what I mentioned a moment ago. Because I am convinced one of the greatest factors holding the church back is most of us are living to please the king of the approval of our peers and our coworkers and our family members. And so we never say, hey, can I, can I share with you something from the scripture? We never knew exactly what Paul did in the synagogue. We, we never reasoned with someone from the scripture. And we never say, hey, you know, I, I hear you talking about the way you're living. And, and I'm not trying to, to be judgy or mean-spirited, but, but do you realize what God says about that? Do you realize that that lines you up as an enemy of God instead of a friend of God? And do you realize that Jesus, he died and rose again. So all of this stuff that you've done against God can be forgiven completely and you can be made new. Well, why don't we say that? I mean, that message is called the gospel. It's called the good news. Why don't we say that? I think because we think it's better news that our friends like us. It's better news that people accept us. Well, we're scared of how they were going to respond. We're scared that some will respond with jealousy and we become so overwhelmed with how others will respond with jealousy or with aggression toward us that we forget that some will respond in faith and they'll trust and, and they'll be saved. See, the gospel, the gospel is costly. Um, if you're following along, I'm just going to hit this briefly. But we see the gospel is costly for these believers. It, it, it costs their safety. 
Jason and his friends were drug out of the house. They were on the verge of being beaten or thrown in jail. It costs their finances. They end up having to pay what is basically a bond as a promise that there won't be any more trouble in the city. It, it actually even costs the freedom of Paul and Silas. You get to verse 10. It says, the brothers immediately, they sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went to the Jewish synagogue. See, Paul and Silas, they couldn't just keep walking around town doing whatever they did. They couldn't go back to the Thessalonican uh, synagogue and continue to share their freedom to go wherever they wanted. It was gone. They said, you need to get out of town. And so they got out of town and they went to the next town. And you know what they did? <laughs> they went to the synagogue and they reasoned from the scriptures, <laughs> and they proved the need for Christ, and they proclaimed that Jesus is the Messiah. This is what they did, but it, it ended up costing them their freedom. The, the point of all of this, the gospel turns your life upside down before it puts your life on track. It, you, you can't have a life that's truly on track until you have a life that is truly believed and grabbed onto and, and wrapped your arms around and held the gospel tight. Once you do that, it will turn your life upside down, but then it will put your life on track. You ever had your life turned upside down? Sometimes that happens in a good way. Sometimes that happens in a hard way. I remember one day at lunch, this is Years and years ago, about, about 15 years ago, I was sitting down for lunch. My, my then brand new wife, we were meeting in the Albertsons parking lot. I was working at Albertsons. She brought me lunch. I went and sat down in the car and, and she handed me my lunch box and said, ah, she kind of had this goofy grin on her face, right? I'm like, okay, th thanks. Thanks for bringing me lunch. I mean, it's something you do when you're young. And she brings me lunch and I, I open up my lunch box and I open it up and there's a pair of infant boots. Turned my life upside down. I was probably worthless the rest of the day at work. <laughs> I probably just talked to everyone. Hey, guess what? Hey, guess what? Hey, guess what? Right? But, but you know what that did? It turned my life upside down, but it put my life on a clear track. Uh, this responsibility is huge. This responsibility is demanding. This responsibility is going to take everything of me. I'm going to be a dad. The gospel works the same exact way in your life. It comes and it turns your life upside down. It says you are no longer the king. But then you know what it does? It puts your life on the best track possible. That's what we're going to start to look at next week. Let's pray. Great God in heaven, we thank you so much for your son, Jesus. We thank you that the Old Testament scriptures, they promised he would come. We thank you that he did come and that he was more amazing than anything we could have imagined. We thank you that Christ lived a perfect life and died in my place. He died in each of our place. That he's paid the price for our sin in full. That through his death and through his resurrection, we have been given a brand new life that we get to walk in. And Father, I pray that that gospel message would truly turn every one of our lives ups, upside down. It would change what we're living for completely. But Father, as it turns our life upside down, I pray that it would put our life on the right track. 
God, I pray for this series as we continue in the next coming months. I, I pray that you would use this series to, to really help every one of us become aligned with your calling on our lives for your glory and because of your great love for us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for being here tonight. I hope you're excited about this series. I hope you're excited to get on track in the next, uh, it's gonna be probably through a couple months, we'll walk through First Thessalonians. And so I wanna encourage you, maybe take some time this week and just start reading through it. Become familiar with the text and we can learn together. Now tonight we're gonna conclude with uh, receiving an offering for those who wanna give, um, either during the last song or after service. There's buckets in the front as well as on the sides. You can turn your connection cards in there as well. Thank you for those who are giving regularly and faithfully here at Valley to support the ministry and the mission. I do wanna share a little bit of news about mission as well. Well, uh, Kevin and Rachel, Kevin who was here this last fall, uh, and Rachel, he preached for us. They're getting ready to go to, uh, to Eastern Europe to serve refugees. There's been some changes in their plans and whatnot, but I actually got an email from him early this morning, and uh, they asked for some prayer. And so uh, basically what happened is uh, Thursday early morning, th their house was burglarized as they were in it. And, um, and so um, their laptops, their electronics were stolen. They're, uh, they're a little terrified, to be honest, with uh, someone coming into your house when you're there. And, um, and so they've, they've asked Valley, who's committed to supporting them and praying for them. They've asked to pray for them. They've given a few prayer requests, obviously, for some wisdom and how to replace some of what was stolen. They've actually asked for prayer for the, the person that burglarized them because they stole their backpack, which had their Bible in it. They're, they're praying they'll read that thing <laughs> and God will use what was meant for evil for good. And so I'm gonna ask you, would you just stand with me? Let's close our service. We got one more song, but let's take some time. Let's pray for Kevin and Rachel together and, um, and for God's continued work in their lives as they're preparing to get on the mission field. And, uh, and then we'll continue to sing. Father, I thank you so much that you, um, that you kept Kevin and Rachel safe. Um, just that image of someone being in their house while they're asleep is, is scary. And yet, you're their God, and you, uh, you won't allow anything to happen to them outside of what you desire. And so we thank you. We rejoice that you protected them. We thank you that their treasure is in heaven. So whatever was stolen from them, they, that, that's not what matters most. We thank you that this does not slowed them or deterred them in their, the mission that you've called them to. And Father, we pray for them. We pray that you would encourage them. We pray you would give them peace, even as they, they get ready for bed tonight. You've given them peace of mind, that they would know that you are the God who saves and that protects, that you're the God that's going to lead them into the mission, and you're the God that's gonna use them for incredible things as they minister to those who've maybe never even heard the gospel. We pray that you would use them powerfully. We pray for these next few months as they, they put the final uh, touches on their preparations. We pray that it would be so productive and they would go to the field just so eager to serve you as they already are. God, we pray for your help in giving them wisdom and how to kind of care for themselves. In the meantime, we pray you would give them wisdom and how to replace the items that were taken, especially those items that are mission critical for what you've called them to do. And God, we thank you that, that we get to partner with them that, that as they prepare to go and serve in, in, in Eastern Europe. Lord, we're preparing to go and serve. 
So Father, I pray that you would bind our hearts to them and love and care. I pray you would give us a burden to pray for them regularly. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.